Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I am joined today by Sarah Talker. You can connect with Sarah at her website, saratalker.co.nz, and her LinkedIn page, which are both linked in the show notes. And as you know, each and every episode, I raise awareness for an organization or charity of my guest choice. And in this episode, Sarah has selected Just Speak. The link is also in the show notes. Please join me in donating for a wonderful cause. And I invited Sarah on the show for several reasons. I did a course with her on self-coaching, which was full of self-discovery and insight on how we can hold space for ourselves. And in this course, I could see that Sarah has a propensity for asking really hard questions. And in a self-proclaimed way, Sarah says that she asks really hard and annoying questions, both to herself and to her clients. And what I love about this is that Sarah looks at really tough challenges in her life and invites her clients to do the same. So things like how has colonialization and the impact of colonialization influenced the way that I see the world? How has it influenced the land that I'm living on, the culture that we are creating? And Sarah lives in New Zealand, but I think that these questions are really important to be asking in the United States, in Europe. Colonialization has really impacted the entire planet and the lingering traumas and ill effects. Sarah does a really great job of asking herself these questions and in doing so, she's able to uncover certain biases that she has, her relationship to power dynamics, her perception of risk, all of these things that as leaders, we need to build the capacity to sit with. And so Sarah does this not in a very heavy way, because it, it can be really depressing to think about all of the damage that we do to each other as a species. But Sarah has a really infectious, contagious, and actually really warm, uplifting energy as well. And so her ability to hold all of that made it a no-brainer to invite her into this space to have this incredibly rich and meaningful conversation. We really go into a lot of depth about what it means to be alive in today's world and what kind of planet we want to be creating for future generations as well. Sarah comes from a lineage of thinkers and feelers. Her mom is also a coach who's been in the leadership development space for quite some time. And so Sarah, in a way, was born into a family that cares about an equitable and just world, which warms my heart. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy the gifts that Sarah shares with us right now. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Kia ora, Mike. It's <laughs> really exciting to be here. I've been looking forward to this with enthusiasm and trepidation all at once. <laughs> yeah, I love it. 
Well, that's usually the sign for good things to come is that yeah. holding both of those, right? There's a, a little bit of unease around what's going to come up today and also the mm. excitement and the joy. And I, I trust that we're going to go into all sorts of beautiful places today. And as someone who has listened to at least a couple of episodes, I think you probably know where I start the interview. Yeah. And let's let's go there first. What was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? I as I was listening to other episodes, my first my first thinking around knowing that you were going to ask this was like, huh, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have a and maybe we'll talk about this later. I, I have really poor memory of of many things, but childhood in particular. The older the memory, the less of it I I have. So I. I rang my family in the last 24 hours and was like, so Mike's going to ask me this question. <laughs> what was it like? Because I don't remember. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and that was a really interesting couple conversations. So I just wanted to thank you as a starting point wow. for the conversations I've had in the lead up to answering this question. So the first answer is, I don't know. Uh, and the second answer is when I I grew up in a in a family in New Zealand in Aotearoa, we were we lived in the capital city, and it was my sister who's three years younger than me and and my parents. So nice little nuclear family, middle class unit. And when I asked both my parents and my sister what was what was it like at our dinner table. They both said, well, unless we had guests over, there was no dinner table. <laughs> so mm. we ate on our knees and we watched television. And I think in part that is due to how busy both my parents were. Mm-hmm. So they both worked really hard. That was one of the big lessons from my childhood is know how to work hard. But I think the second answer to that is we spend a lot of time with with our extended family and with friends. And so those dinner table conversations were lively and challenging. And there was an expectation that as children, we had something to contribute. And, and not only would we have an opinion, that we would need to defend our opinion. Because <laughs> debate and discussion was big. I, I grew up in a family where everybody was expected to understand what was going on in the world. And that our opinions were welcome as as children and as young people. So, you know, on the one hand, we've got this this eating on our knees, watching the TV, exhausted parents. And, you know, from age 10, my sister and I had been expected to cook a night a week. I think it was probably not great food. (laughs) (laughs) My mother said there was a lot of pasta. (laughs) And she said, and then too much zucchini. So I don't know, I must have had a thing about zucchini. But there was there was also this sort of this expansive connected space where where there was a, a predictability in the process. We would we would go to somebody's house or they would come to ours. There was some ritual to it. We'd always start with a drink or a snack or whatever and and then move into a main event and and everybody in my family loves to cook. And so there was always great food and then great discussion and debate. And, you know, somebody get grumpy and somebody else would, you know, 
take offense and we would all come back together at the end of it. Mm-hmm. There were some really big events in my childhood that that our family fundamentally did not agree on. My parents were far more left-wing than other parts of our family. And there were some really big, big, hard conversations about the state of the world. And again, we were expected to be contributing to those conversations. So it was an educative experience, I think, at our dinner Mm. table. (laughs) Yeah, lots of lots of layers to the answer. I don't know, followed by lots of other things. Yeah. I'm, I'm appreciating a couple of things already in, in the answer. One is just the care that you're bringing to ask your family when you didn't know what it was like to, to prepare for this conversation and to listen to a couple of episodes of mine. And I'm also appreciating that is, I see that in your leadership style too, when you don't know the answer to something or you want more I don't know, a different perspective or different answers, vantage points that you will survey other people around you to give more data, if you will, to paint a fuller picture. And yeah, that's it. Even in me just asking what it was like at your dinner table growing up, you're giving a taste for what it's like when you're doing facilitation or organizational and leadership development that you don't, if you don't know the answer, that's okay. Let's just ask other people, mm-hmm. like, let's, let's collectively source the the wisdom and the knowledge here. And I, I doubt that's what you intended when you reach out, you're <laughs> probably just doing what Sarah does, but that is you're in a way you're modeling what it means to be an effective leader. And I appreciated that immediately from your response. Thank you. It's so and it wasn't it was not always that way you know when I started out in in my work I felt a huge pressure to know all the answers and yeah. I would and I would fake it and it was not great <laughs> but as I've relaxed into into the work and been humbled by you know being caught out a few times in my early career when I thought I knew the things but I really didn't it's been a journey to accepting that me knowing all the answers is problematic. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's not helpful because it doesn't create space for anybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did, like, where did, where do you think that came from? I know that you, you attribute a lot of your work ethic to your parents, that they were both mm-hmm. business owners. They both worked very hard. And if my memory serves me correctly, you also got into business with your mother that she has a similar career path to you or maybe even the Mm -hmm. same was that did you pick up that pattern from your parents was it something that maybe it was modeled as a leadership quality in culture or some combination yeah such a good question let me sit with that for a moment Mm -hmm. where did that come from I think it I think in part it came from my parents and the ex in the in our family with the expectation that you always needed to be learning something like you you're not done right you don't go cool I finished thank you (laughs) now I know all the things you know my mother went went back to study and and she's I don't even know how old she is right now that's probably bad she's 60 something (laughs) (laughs) and my father is nearly 70 and and they are both still learning and so that that expectation is that we we keep learning. But I think there is also something that I've learned from 
my my partner's family and from the indigenous people of Aotearoa, there's something very much in in Maori culture, which is the idea that you it is a collective way of leading and mm. and that you can't do it alone, nor should you. And that somebody, that everybody has a role. Everybody has something to contribute, whether they are the person washing the dishes or the person, you know, doing the formal speeches. Everybody has something to contribute and they all have value. And so I think that sense of, you know, how could I possibly know all the stuff? And, and why would I expect other people to know less is really important. Mm. 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 Which was also modeled at your dinner table as as children, yeah. right? Like if they don't just because you're a child doesn't mean that you know less. You have there's something that you are bringing to the collective, regardless of your age or lack of experience, and that's mm, yeah, an interesting insight. Yeah, I was talking to my sister this morning about this. What was our dinner table like? And she said, you know, I remember really clearly, Mum saying, "Should I should I apply for this job?" And she's like, I don't know, I'm like 16. <laughs> like, I don't even know what the job is. I don't know what that even means. But but that expectation that you'd have a view and it might not be the whole thing, but we're looking to sort of build a, a picture or a view from everybody's contribution. Mm. This could be an interesting, like I, I actually look at our conversation as maybe bouncing around and my conversations don't usually go that way, but I I would actually love to focus on this element for now that sure. I, I imagine that a lot of the leaders that you are working with are, they've gotten to the place that they are in a lot of ways because they are very good at making their own decisions or they have developed some sort of technical expertise or mm. uh, I don't know, there's, there's uh, at least the way that from my vantage point, a lot of quote unquote leaders or executives have some authoritative role or capacity, but they're not as good at delegating or sourcing from the collective or asking the janitor, for example, for a, mm. a piece of advice about something where that could actually be really helpful, where, where someone would be open to that. So I'm wondering if a, when a leader is coming to you, like, what what's the typical type of person that you're working with and how do you how do you help them see the benefit of sourcing the collective rather than mm. the, maybe the old pattern of i've got to figure this shit out on my own i love what you're saying about that you know I, there are a couple questions in there that we can that there yeah, that i'd be keen to play with and and i guess one i i work with lots of different kinds of leaders so i work with people who are in the you know in the senior roles in government, which sounds really impressive until you remember that there's only five million pe million people in New Zealand. So, like, <laughs> <it's>, um, <laughs> you know, everybody knows everybody. We I think the world operates on you know what is it six degrees of separation. In Aotearoa, yeah. we talk about two. <laughs> like, everyone knows you. So, so. Uh, yeah, I work with a lot of senior leaders and, and we talk about a couple things a lot. One is the the leadership capabilities that we're rewarded for in our early career when our brains are really still in development mode. What you've spoken about, Mike, you know, the ability to 
solve a problem, to be the person who knows what to do, to to make shit happen, right? And then we say, can you just lead all these other people who also have that capability? And all of a sudden you go, well, what's my value here? If if all these people know what to do as well and they've been rewarded all their career, now I'm going, well, I don't really know what to do with that. And so a lot of the leaders who come to me are really figuring out what leadership is for them now, mm-hmm. now that they're leading other leaders who are leading other leaders who are leading other leaders. Like, what do I even do? Yeah. <laughs> and I think for some folks, that tendency to really lock it down and make sure they are the person who knows all the things and does all the things looks a lot like control when actually it's their own anxiety about how do I add value and how do I, how do I do something that means something? But I think a lot of the conversations that we start with is the loneliness of leadership. Mm. You know, we talk a lot about, Hey, it's lonely at the top. It's, it's often a place of isolation. It's a place of being awake at 3 a.m. and going, I don't know what to do here, but I can't tell anyone else that. Whereas, again, that's a that's a more of a Western model, whereas when we learn from, from te ao Māori, the Māori world, we know that that's not how a collective culture works. A collective culture may have a leader, but it speaks to everybody else and, and everybody gets some input before we make a call. It comes from a place of deep humility about your role and some and your role as a leader isn't to know the stuff. Your role is to know how to have a conversation to figure out what the stuff is and therefore what we need to do. Mm. And I think I have had the opportunity to learn from a whole bunch of leaders who know how to do collective leadership. And those are the people I see being most effective in the way that our world is is, is orienting itself. Mm. Those are the people who are able to, you know, hold the responsibility but not own it. Yeah. And I, I think would- if you're having to own things we're asking the wrong question. Mm. I'd love to keep exploring this and, and go even deeper mm. on. Yeah. Like a part of me just wants to share that where, where I'm at and there's it, it can be really challenging to be like, I am, I have really prided myself on my independence and my ability to do things on my own and, I identify as an introvert. There, there's all sorts of different ways where I can kind of shell into myself and think that when I am confronted with a challenge, that it's on me to figure it out. And there's also lots of baked in stories about what it means to ask for help and that that mm-hmm. makes me weak. And I'm just, I'm wondering that like I'm only 32 and a lot of the leaders that you're working with their, their habits and their patterns are even more deeply grooved and it must be even more challenging to let go of those things. And I'm wondering how you've already done a beautiful job of articulating the benefit of that, that it's, it's not really useful to only have this one mode of getting things done, but I'm wondering how it, what it looks like when it starts to open up for them and, 
how open are they to it in the first place? So is it, it feels like the world, their worldview might be crashing down on them in some way while they're still trying to, you know, manage all these responsibilities and all of that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I, generally speaking, Mike, people don't call me because things are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they're calling and they're like, hey, I think I need a hand. And it might, and often it starts with one thing and then we extrapolate out into all the other things. But but we often have conversations about, you know, it, what was your life like when you were small? Where did these messages of needing to be independent come from? You know, whose voice is that? When you're hearing that voice of, you know, suck it up, know the answer, do more research, do it by yourself, be good enough. Like whose voice is that? Because nobody gets born with that voice, right? So who is it? Who are we listening to? And sitting with those conversations, for some leaders, it's really hard, right? Because we're showing vulnerability and, and often we've been told that that's not leaderful. You know, leaderful is is being like that duck with the feet going really fast under the water and looking chill on the top, which is just such bullshit, right? <laughs> and perpetuates more of the same. So so I spend quite a bit of time working with leaders about their system and what are the what are the the inputs into their system that they're in now and how is that the same or similar to the system that they grew up in and and so what's being triggered in that system for them and and if we were to make some small changes to the way they respond to that system what could be possible that isn't now mm -hmm. and I think for a lot of people that's not a conversation they would usually have and it's confronting and a lot of people feel like they having that conversation means they're apportioning blame in place, you know, where they should just own all of it themselves. I'm I'm the one at fault. I'm the one who's not good enough. But I just think, gosh, there's so much context that shapes the way we show up, right? Mm -hmm. The the conversations we have and don't have are absolutely about what's happening in the moment, but they're also about all the stuff we bring with us and all of the stories we have from when we were tiny and, and from before our arrival yeah. on the planet. And all, you know, there's there's so much complexity and yet we simplify it down to, hey, I suck at this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I go, wow, that's a lot of responsibility you're trying to take there. Mm -hmm. Like, there probably were some other things going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe we look at those and see how you respond. And, and I think I think there is a relief for a lot of people in that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a, a, a solidarity. Uh, I run programs for leaders who uh, aren't in the same organisation but are at sort of the same tier of seniority. And I always say to them, you know, the biggest thing you're going to get from this program is not anything I say. It's not going to be from the articles that we ask you to read or the, the TED Talks we ask you to watch or, or the interviews even that you do. It's going to be the solidarity of sitting with your peers and going, my world's on fire. And they go, oh, my God, me too. <laughs> like that's actually what we need is to reduce that loneliness so we can go to some deeper places. And uncover our bit in it. Yeah. So I'm I'm actually wanting to. One of the ways that we are 
invisibly influenced, if you will, is mm -hmm. a is a topic that you wanted to talk about today. And um it's it doesn't it might not seem to listener like something that would fit into the conversation we've had so far, but I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about if not colonialization, just what mm -hmm. are some of the invisible forces that you look at that are influencing the way that we are collectively and individually moving through the world? Because this only mm -hmm. recently came onto my radar and it's it's profoundly impacting the way that I look at myself and society mm -hmm. at, at large. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe to answer that, I'll start with my own family history in yeah. Aotearoa. So I don't know what this really says about me, but both the, both my mother and my father, their lineage goes back to the same clan in the Scottish Highlands. And I find that really funny. They came, their families came quite differently to Aotearoa, but they both came, um, they both came in, in the early and mid 1800s to Aotearoa. And Aotearoa had a thriving and highly functional and highly effective culture within the, the indigenous people, the Maori um, at that point. And both of my both of my lines of of lineage or whakapapa um, is the word that we would use here in Aotearoa, um, came and colonised. And what I found really painful as I started looking back at the people that I come from is these are people who were colonised themselves. So they came from the highlands in Scotland and they left the highlands in Scotland because and this is a really simplified version because um, there's all a whole bunch of complexity, but but basically they left because their lands were being sold to the British mm -hmm. and they were driven off their lands. And if if any of your listeners are familiar with the Highland clearances, that was a big factor in, in the movement of, of Clan Mackay, which is my clan. And, and so my ancestors came, Clan Mackay came as a, as a religious colonizing force. Uh, and my father's um, people had left the Highlands a long time ago and, and had come through Cornwall on the coast of England. And if you speak to Cornish people, they tell you really clearly they're not English. <laughs> <laughs> they're really clear that they are not English. And, and they arrived into Aotearoa looking for a place to move out of poverty. So we have these two families arriving within 20 years of each other in a country that is being really quickly colonized. But they're also families who have been colonized and have and are looking for a better life for themselves. You know, nobody arrives in Aotearoa by accident, right? You have to choose to come here. And then my family arrives and they colonize. And so if I think about all of that, I go, what happened? What would you have to believe to go, this shitty thing happened to me. I'm going to go somewhere else, and now I'm going to do that to some other people. And the real complexity for me as a parent is I've got these three children who are Māori. So when, I, when, my, when my middle daughter was seven, she came home from school and 
in the way that only seven-year-olds can answer the ask these questions. She said, hey, mum, how come your family killed some of dad's family? Mm. And I went, wow, that's a question. Because first of all, I didn't know the answer. Second of all, I didn't know whether they had or not. And I found myself being really defensive, like, you know, it wouldn't have been my family, but actually. And and it led me on a journey of, so what does all of this mean? And I guess to, to bring that back around to your question, all of us are carrying all of that stuff with us. And some people will have heard about intergenerational trauma. But I think if we if we think about the stories that we bring to ourselves and our family, they're not just our stories, right? They're the history that we think about. They're the, the traditions that we bring. They are the ways that we show up what we believe is valuable and not valuable. And if we can't look at that, then we can't reshape it or we can't celebrate it, or we can't shift it. And that shows up in the way we parent. It shows up in the way we meet with community or not. It shows up in the way that we lead. And and it's it's that being controlled by your own system without knowing that you're being controlled by it. And so a lot of the work that I do with people is around understanding what came before you that shaped how you show up, even if you don't know about it. And those are big, hard conversations, and often they're really painful. And certainly in my own investigation of my own history, which is ongoing, right, there's some painful stuff that that I that I don't love looking at, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Mm. I would love to go there personally because I think that that will it'll demonstrate you sharing what has come up for you will it in a way it models what what might be on the other side of it. I don't want to say on the other side of it, but I think a lot of people fall into the trap of what, like, what is the utility of, of this thing that sound like, I understand that intergenerational trauma or colonialization and that, you know, a few generations ago, my ancestors wounded a, a different set of people who then wounded another set of people. But like, what do I, okay, I know that. So what do I do with that? And I'm, I would love to explore your own personal investigation mm. of how you looked at it. And was it precipitated in some, like, was this work already underway when your seven-year-old daughter asked you this question? And there's there must be all sorts mm. of instances that have forced you to take more and more looks at it. And uh, yeah, I know there's yeah. a lot there, but. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. I, It wasn't underway. I wasn't looking. I had grown up in a in a really white city in a well resourced town. I hadn't really understood any of that context. And and I think there was a an I think there was always though in my family an interest in social justice. So I went, I, I talk about, I went to my first protest when I was one. <laughs> my dad took me. I'm not sure my mum was aware of that. <laughs> she might have found out afterwards. I, I, I think that's true. And so there was always an expectation that as, as people who had, we needed to look out for the people who did not have. 
But for me, that was kind of conceptual until my daughter comes home and she asks this question and I go, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I think that for me, as I look at it, I go, so the reason that my family got to have this financially secure life, yeah, they worked hard. That's true. But, but they have land that was in some instances, taken and sold illegally from the 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 indigenous iwi or tribes or families, hapu. They have absolutely benefited from the destruction of somebody else's culture. And there is no getting around it. There's it, you know, I can't, I can't justify it, I can't explain it. And and so that leads to some really uncomfortable truths. But I think it's important that as we try and heal the things that have happened in the past, we have to look at them. I, there's In the world of sort of systemic work and constellations work, there's a, there's a rule called primacy, right? What happens first matters most and shapes everything after. And if we can't look at that, we can't see how it shapes everything today. So we go, you know, those poor people, they should just work harder. They should just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They should stop being poor. They should, you know, get better jobs. They should get educated. Like, well, that's really freaking easy to say. But <laughs> but when you don't have the land that you should have, when you don't have the livelihood that you did have, when you don't have access to productive land that you did that was sold or stolen or taken illegally from you, when your when your ancestors were brutalized and raped and sent to prisons illegally and held without charge, no wonder you're a bit damaged, no wonder you're a bit upset, no wonder you're a bit angry, no wonder you're not that well resourced. And yet we're going to hold you responsible for being poor and not having great health outcomes and and being the, the folks that go to prison more often than everybody else. And then you add on layers of actually there's a whole bunch of racism at play in the way that we even govern. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, we now have a government in Aotearoa that has legislated the fact that we are required to work with the indigenous people of this country, that that that's the law now, that mm. we have to work in partnership. But I think for a lot of people, it's much easier to sit with, why can't we all just move on? That happened in the past. I wasn't there. That's a cop-out. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. comfortable cop-out, but it, it will never fix it. It will never help us move on, and we will move further and further apart. Mm. And, and one of the maybe fault, very false beliefs that people of privilege like you and I might otherwise sit on is that we live in a meritocracy that, like you said, yeah. is if you work hard, you can make it. And you can, of course, you can point to any number of different examples of people who were born as a person of color, who didn't have much, who who did kind of, quote unquote, pull themselves up by the bootstraps and that's we're getting nitpicky here and Mm. (laughs) we're not nitpicky we're cherry picking examples that support us remaining comfortable when if we really acknowledge it 
I was born on third base and many people in the United States and it sounds like also in New Zealand were born having to really claw their way just to be seen and heard in any sort of way at a societal level. Mm. And that could be, it's very, very challenging to look at that. And it's only, it's something I've only recently opened the door on. And it's, for me, it's a really interesting one because I am Jewish. So mm. uh, being Jewish and being white in the United States is that there's so many different things intersecting with each other because just a couple of generations ago, my ancestors were all fleeing and in poverty. And so there's, there's elements of scarcity. There's elements mm. of, we're not really like other white people that we were persecuted. Jews have been heavily persecuted. Mm. And we've also now been in the United States for a long enough time that we have kind of started taking on the other elements of whiteness in the country. Mm. So I think one of the underlying scripts of being a white Jewish person in the United States is that there's uh, what I notice within me and a lot of people around me is there's built in scarcity. There's mm. built in retreating to we we're not going to be supported by people around us because we've been heavily persecuted for a lot of our lifetime and lifetimes beyond. And also when we walk outside, there are privileges of, um, you know, I don't have to say that I'm Jewish. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm white. And I was personally born with pretty good material wealth. So, uh, you know, understanding these different things about me has really impacted the way that I see myself and my place in this society. And I think it's really important as leaders that we, we understand what the systems are that we are operating in because it's without the knowledge of of the system there's no way of being able to really influence it at least not with the level that if we're conscious of the systems that we can influence them yeah. so i when you in in pre-screening of this conversation when you when you said colonialization i and and you do speak a lot about systems in your work and understanding the way you said constellations too now mm. it's really important for us to put the microscope on these things because they, I don't, I don't think they've been spoken about a lot until recently and, and they are heavily influencing our behavior in all sorts of ways that we probably aren't conscious to. Mm. And, and I think when we don't speak about it, we leave it to those who have less to do the work. Yes. And, you know, there's a big conversation in Aotearoa at the moment about co-governance, right? And, and the sort of short version of that is, is leading in partnership with tangata whenua, the, the Indigenous people, right? And there's a whole bunch of people who are going, oh, we can't possibly do that because, and then there's dot, 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 right? Because the subject subtext is, and there are a whole bunch of excuses over the top, I would have to give away or share power. And that's really, for me, the, the lack of understanding your system. Because if you look at it from a system point of view, you can see the gray. You're not just in good thing, bad thing, good people, bad people, rich people, poor people, left wing, right wing, you know, other topics that, probably are too political <laughs> but but I I think we 
our human brains love a simple answer. They love, you know, this is the goodie in the book or the movie and this is the baddie. That's why comic books are amazing, right? It's like, cool, this guy's the bad guy, this guy's the good guy. Everybody has a fight. at the. We have a cool action scene and then at the end the goodie wins. And that's really satisfying for a human brain, but it's not real. And I think one of the things we need to do as people of privilege, whatever you are, whatever your way of understanding that, is to look at what else is true. Yeah, so what what is true is I was I was born into a privileged position. I come from people who are who have colonized and have benefited from colonization. I am also the parent of Maori children. One of my daughters is is also Jewish. Mm. What is also true is I I work with people who know things that I don't about what privilege looks like from the other side. What is also true is I've never actually been persecuted for what I look like other than being female or being young. There are experiences I will never have. And I think often when we are talking about making change, we're just looking for that black or white space because it's easy, right? Co-governance is good or it's bad. Well, actually, there are a whole bunch of layers in here that we're choosing not to look at because it requires us to think deeply. It requires us to challenge our own thinking. And that's uncomfortable. And I get people not wanting to look at things that are uncomfortable. You know, I'm certainly guilty of shying away myself. And nothing changes if we stick with the dichotomy or, and the polarity of good versus bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many things that I want to unpack here. And as, as you were speaking, I tried to jot down a couple of things that I wanted to get to for sure, because my mind is racing all over the place. But one of the things that I find really fascinating, I, I had a conversation recently on this podcast with a lovely woman by the name of Agnes Olselberger. And she talked about how when she was young and an activist, that her kind of white saviorism yeah, mm-hmm. like you could see where I was going with this before I even said it. I'm just I'm <laughs> nodding because I was listening to that podcast yesterday on my morning walk. And wow. I, yeah, yeah. So synchronicity, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I think that that's something that I am wanting to look more closely at too, because I mm-hmm. as an example, which you probably know, but I'll I'll say it again in case folks that are listening right now didn't listen to the other podcast mm-hmm. when if I, I don't live in New York City anymore, but most of my professional adult life, I lived in New York City. If I passed a person of color who was homeless, there's the the urge for me to like give them a, as much mm-hmm. money as possible or things as possible. And what I have come to learn about white saviorism is it, one of the things is that I am projecting my own kind of this, I need money. Money is the thing that is going to fix me or help me be more alive or more full or more whole. And I'm just projecting that onto another human without really understanding anything about what it is to be a person of color or to be a person who's experiencing homelessness. Mm. And yeah, so the, I guess the, the question behind this is like, how do you how do you grapple with the difference between saviorism versus being a true 
ally and listening to other people's needs and being able to meet them where they actually need and not what you think they need. Mm. I love that you shared that experience of being, you know, in New York City, because I think a lot of people have that experience and don't say it. So Mm -hmm. thank you for saying that. And I think there are lots of ways into this, but, you know, the tagline for my business is creating space at the table for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think the job of people, I'll start simple and then I'll get complex. (laughs) The job of people who have power is to get out of the way, to use that power to get out of the way. That's my view. And what I mean by that is if I'm in a room and we're all talking about how do we solve poverty, but there's no one in the room who's actually experienced poverty, who's lived in poverty, who's living in poverty, then we're never going to have the most useful conversation for starters. We're going to solve the wrong problem the wrong way. And Agnes totally spoke about that in the podcast with you. And I really loved listening, listening to her examples. Um, but I think for you know a lot of it is who's not here that should be? Who are the right people to be here? And so my job as a person with privilege in any of those scenarios is get out of the way. Call in the right people. Call in the people. Make space. And don't make space for one person because what do they then become? They become the spokesperson, the expert. It's now reliant on them to know all the things. And how much pressure is that? So I always say, you know, bring them in in pairs and groups. Give them, give more space. Make sure the people who are impacted uh, are the people who are driving the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then I think the next thing, and in, in, in government we find this really hard, trust them. Yeah? So don't try to control it. If you're not willing to share the resource, don't invite them to the table to help you solve the thing. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a piece there about creating space at the table, making sure that the, the people who the actually experts, the the actually impacted people are at the table, and then make it a safe table for them. Yeah, don't make it your table. Make it a table that is their table, and maybe it's not even a table, right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's something else. I think there's, I think as people of privilege, there's a, a a responsibility to know your history. You know, I find that with the Prime Minister of New Zealand having a whole bunch, the ex-Prime Minister now, she resigned, and good on her. <laughs> but with Jacinda Ardern having so much international profile, we have we have this sort of interest from people all around the world in in Aotearoa as a country and in Māori as a people. And they come here wanting to know all this stuff that's shiny and exciting about te ao Māori, the Māori world, but they haven't done the work in their own backyard. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. know what's in your backyard. Mm -hmm. Know what's in, in your space before you go looking anywhere else for the answers. And I think we often go into what's shiny and exciting or being profiled in the news or whatever. Absolutely learn from other people, but know what's happening in your own backyard. Because if you can't know that, then you're not ready to learn anybody else's stuff and and you don't really have the right to ask. Mm. Again, that sounds really black and white. (laughs) And and I, as you can probably tell, feel really strongly about that. Yeah. (laughs) 
because it becomes cultural appropriation. And I guess the the piece related to that for me is I spend a lot of time, people come to me and say, you know, can you come to speak to our group about this? Or can, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so being really careful as a, as a person who doesn't know to know who does know and to be able to say, you don't need to be speaking to me, but I can tell you who you need to speak to or here's how to find out who you need to speak to. And and I think we often expect that, and I don't know if this is the same in the States, but we often expect in Aotearoa that there is a Māori voice. Now, that's not a thing. There are a huge amount of variation in even just the language of te reo Māori in Aotearoa. So expecting a single voice is a fool's errand to begin with. So I think understanding the complexity, understand who you need to be speaking to and don't speak to the easy person to speak Mm. to. Mm. Speak to the right person to speak to and get curious and willing to be uncomfortable around that. And I think for me, part of the space that I need to hold is being willing to be uncomfortable, being willing to keep learning and being willing to say nothing because I'm not the right person to say it. And the last thing I would add is my big role is to challenge other Pākehā, other white people. When they go, why can't we just move on? Or why do we need some of them in the room, whether it's, you know, migrants or refugees or Māori or whoever, my job is to hold other Pākehā accountable because I can do that. Hmm. Well, I actually would love to go there with you because there are a couple of things that I wanted to underline and a, a question mm-hmm. I have, but I would love to hold I would love to know how you hold up the mirror in a way that it's not that the other person, the other white person won't get defensive. I imagine that they probably will get defensive, but how are how are you holding a space where there's maybe that there's a challenger energy there, but mm. also like, let's look at this. I'm not, I'm not finger pointing. I'm not blaming yeah. you. Mm. And this is also really important to look at. It seems like it's a delicate balance. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is a delicate balance. And, you know, I also think for many of us, as soon as we're defensive, we hear nothing, we learn nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know that's true for me. <laughs> as soon as I think you're telling me I'm wrong, like the brain is disengaged. Me too. <laughs> and so I think the biggest thing we can do when challenging other folks is, is to start with empathy mm-hmm. and go, you know, there's a reason you believe that. Yeah. You didn't just invent it by yourself. There's a reason you believe that. And, and under that belief is a feeling and under that and, and 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 there's a value and there's something that you hold dear so if we can get to that what is the th- you know how you're feeling you know maybe they're feeling defensive maybe they're feeling isolated maybe they're feeling ill-equipped maybe they're feeling like the world is changing and they can't keep up and this is scary and the rules that used to apply don't apply anymore and So I go, wow, that must be really unsettling. You know, that's frightening. So we start there. That's really frightening. And now we're on the same page because I know what that frightening feeling is like. I know what it feels like when what you thought you knew is different Mm -hmm. and the rules have changed and you feel alone and you feel, 
you know, unsettled by your place in things. That's scary. Yeah. And so for me, it's instead of coming with judgment, it's coming with empathy and curiosity. And if I can stay in those places, even if I don't love what they're saying, even if I find it deeply offensive, even if there's a part of me that's like, I want to hit you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or get the fuck out of my house. Or, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. I have to meet them with empathy and curiosity for us to be able to go anywhere. Otherwise, we're just going to bang heads and that doesn't help. It creates more division. It's the the absolute antidote to othering is to mm. to be able to see like what's what's going yeah. what's running the script underneath all of these words. How can I because they're a human also, and mm. how can I meet them at at their humanity? And also, yeah. this is an, an interesting thing that I've been coming to. I don't know if you're familiar with reclamation work, but mm. a lot of a lot of times, the things that we are most reactive to is usually something that we're not willing to see in ourselves mm, mm, yeah and if i can just acknowledge and own that sometimes i am an insufferable argumentative righteous mm. prick and asshole or something to that effect or whatever parts of myself that i don't want to see i know that i'm not i'm actually really not all that different from the person who ostensibly has all opposing beliefs and who's saying things that i find morally outrageous mm. I can I can understand that they are also a human who, like me, who is conditioned and is influenced by so many other different systems and things. And they're probably doing their very best, too. And and mm. they probably have a family that they really care about. And I mm. disagree. But I know underneath it all, I, I can. So what, what I'm getting at is the rec- reclamation work for me, which I've actually done with my relationship to money. And that's a, a whole different conversation that mm. we can have about projections that we put onto all sorts of things money is a highly charged one if we can just own that all of these things that we are seeing other people also are part of us it it it's hard Mm -hmm. to without experiencing it it's hard to really explain it but it just creates so much more freedom and uh, compassion and empathy and curiosity like you're naming there so Mm. uh, and I and I hear in what you're saying some parts work stuff as well right you know there's that sense of what's alive in me here and and you know all of that I'm capable of all of that I'm capable of being the world's I'm sure you're picking it up most opinionated person that's definitely a thing I've got (laughs) sometimes it's helpful sometimes it really eliminates relationships (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah so th- there's two things Sarah that I wanted to circle back to from a, a couple of answers ago and and one is just how powerful a leadership quality and, and just how powerful period it can be to stand firmly in not knowing which mm. is it seems sorely missing in in leadership is to just be able to say I don't know if I'm the right person to be facilitating this conversation but I'm happy to take a look or asking for help or doing all the things that we don't, I I know a lot, a lot of my conditioning around leadership is having the answer, being Mm -hmm. authoritative, appearing to be in control. And it's like you said, it's the duck that is underneath the water is like really heavily kicking and above the water tries to maintain a certain facade, but a, a much more 
anti-fragile form of leadership mm -hmm. is is really to just to admit like I don't know but I have lots of people around me who can help maybe so yeah I wanted to underline that because it's it's an insight that I keep coming to over and over again and something that I have a tough time letting go of personally about what it means to be a leader and the second mm -hmm. thing that it really it might even be one of the headline lines of this interview is that you need to tend to your own backyard you need to look at your own backyard before mm. trying to maybe solve all the world's problems and it brings yeah. up for me just inner work mm -hmm. in, in and of itself just like the level of import and i'm wondering if you could speak to some it doesn't have to be forms of inner work but just what what do you look at inner work as for yourself it so that you're able to show up in all of the way the beautiful ways that we've been speaking about mm -hmm. such great such great reflections and questions thank you so i guess the the inner work is is always evolving in my world because i i get caught by new ideas and i go oh <laughs> <laughs> I was, before our conversation this morning, I was talking to a colleague, her name's Dallas, and every time I speak to her, she's like, what are you learning about? And I go, I don't know, I'm learning this. And she goes, here's what I'm learning. And then we both come off the phone going, oh, cool, new stuff. So, which is a tendency that can help and hinder me, right? So, <laughs> so as I think about what's the, what's the inner work, there are a couple of things. One, I have professional supervision. And I do that with a clinical psychologist. And that is about keeping me safe, keeping me clear about the boundaries in my work. Because I don't know about you, Mike, but people disclose some really big stuff mm -hmm. in, in both my coaching and facilitation work, as you can imagine, given some of the topics that, that we cover. And so all of that, I don't know how to explain it better, but it kind of gets all over me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need a yeah. place to sit. I need a place to to let that go. And and there's some simple stuff, having a shower. Having a shower is really good inner work for me, like having a shower and just sitting. And sometimes I will sit in the bottom of the shower and just be like, okay, cool, today is over. <laughs> but, you know, the clinical psychologist, somatic work is really important to me. I don't have a mind's eye. I can't imagine things particularly well. So... So working in my body is really important and sitting with with how that feels. Really sitting with my emotions is a really big thing as well. I have gained a lot from the work of David Cantor. I've gained a lot from the work of Barry Oshry and 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 his reflections on on power dynamics in in any kind of a system. And I've gained a lot from, from writers who challenge me to think really hard. So there's a woman, an Indigenous Māori woman in Aotearoa who I, I, I subscribe to her Patreon and her name is Tina Ngata. And I read her work and go, oh, <laughs> oh, there's some stuff I have to look at and that hurts and it's the good kind of hurt because I know it will take me somewhere new. And so I I don't have a way, I have a bunch of ways. 
And I guess the other pieces I have, my business is set up in the way that I don't ever have to be the expert in everything. And I guess this speaks to what you were talking about first as your reflection of, you know, we, we can't be people who know all the things and we shouldn't. And so I don't, ha I have my EA, Brenda, who is amazing and, and without whom the world would be a very <laughs> messy place. <laughs> um, but aside from that, I just have colleagues. And so I spend a lot of time speaking with clients where I go, you need to speak to Adam or you need to speak to Dallas or you need to speak to Tarapuhi or you need to speak to George or you need to speak to whoever else because they know this stuff so much better than I do. They're going to do a way better job for you than I could. And, and I'm happy to broker it, but just speak to them directly. And the business model is set up that there's no money changing hands for that. It's just finding the right people for the right places. And that's one of the things I can do with my privilege as well is build the connection and get out of the way. Yeah. So I think those things are really important for me in understanding that it doesn't all have to sit with me because otherwise the responsibility to know all the answers becomes slightly overwhelming. Yeah, it sure does. I can really relate, by the way, to the, the every whatever the thing I'm learning about. It's new and exciting, and it's uh, mm. I, I wonder how I can implement it, and you know that that translates into wanting to do a million new courses. And yeah, it's one of the beautiful things about our our field is that there's just an endless amount of new things that we can be learning, and there's also a depth to even if you just focus on one thing, there's just so much depth to mm. the work that we do. And it's one of those slippery slopes of, you know, how do I kind of wet my beak enough that I'm I'm engaging, I'm learning, and then also like where am I pushing towards burnout and overwhelm? But mm. uh, just kind of a reflection to say I I know exactly what it is that you're <laughs> describing. I'm I'm wondering if we could run a rep, if you will, around what it might look like to confront a new and hard truth for you and and what that in terms of inner work, what that might look like. And if it would be helpful, mm -hmm. I can share for me to buy you time. And if you have an answer, then then go for it. I think running a rep is like a sports analogy that I don't understand, but <laughs> what would what would you do if you were confronted with a, yeah. a new a new hard truth that you were wanting to integrate in some way? I think first of all, I would sit with the emotion of it and just sit and feel that. And and I would usually, I'd usually take it for a walk. Mm -hmm. I do my best work walking and even better if I can get into the forest. My grandfather always used to say that his church was in the hills and that's really true for me. It was, you know, walking, taking, taking something for a walk and just feeling into the emotion of it. So maybe, maybe I've read something that is all about, you know, Pākehā taking up space in conversations where Indigenous folks should be. And I go, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> I've done that. And I don't love that I did that. And now I've got a whole bunch of shame. And now I've got a whole bunch of what does that mean about me? And am I a horrible person? And I shouldn't be doing this. And somebody else would be doing it better. And and all of that discomfort. And taking that for a walk and just letting it move through my body as well as through my emotions at the same time, that really works for me. And 
And then I'm really extroverted, so I need to talk about it. And so taking that to a trusted advisor, whether that's my clinical psych Sue or whether that is somebody who I trust in that space who knows about those things and and what I would usually take to them is, here's where I'm at, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so trying to stay curious with it. What am I missing here? What are, what else can't I see? What are the other layers of it? Not making it their job, but, but asking for insight. And then I, <laughs> a child of my parents, sometimes I'll take it to my kids because mm-hmm. there is great wisdom in the clarity of, of children. So, you know, my my eldest, my stepdaughter, Michelle Mia, uh, she's 22. She knows a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. My my middle child, Olivia, knows a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. My youngest, Sylvia, knows a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. My partner, uh, he knows a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. So, so really just sitting in the not knowingness and that's to, to an extent, that's an anathema to my personal desire to know and fix and solve and and be better immediately. <laughs> and I guess I I learned that sitting with curiosity space from a TED talk I watched years ago in a book that I, by Catherine Schultz called On Being Wrong. And it's a book if you if you're not into swearing, do not read the book. but as we've established I'm okay with that so I love (laughs) I love but her research is about what happens when we figure out that we're wrong because that's what this is right you're figuring out that you're wrong about something or in a in a way of behaving behaving or thinking and and I can't do her work justice in a brief conversation but but it I love that it essentially said sit with it and don't try and fix it too fast stay curious and so my work my inner work around that is multifaceted and and it's not hurried because as soon as I try and get the the answer the outcome the fix I haven't paid any attention to the complexity of it Mm And sometimes I'll, you know, draw a constellation or draw a, a system map or, you know, really sit with that sort of stuff. It, it depends on the, the topic. But, yeah, the aim of the game, stay curious as long as possible, look for the grey, look for the layers, feel it through my body, keep it moving and and be open to a lot of other voices until I figure out what mine is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What feels like your biggest edge these days there's like I I know that that could point in a million different directions but Mm. it's it seems like you're already addressing so many of the thorniest of questions and truths about what it means to be a human so Mm. what would you say is your your edge at the moment (sighs) I'm just trying to think about which one I pick yeah I get it I I think I've been grappling for a little while about how we value people's skills. Mm -hmm. And, and there's something there for me about how we pay people in our society and and what we pay more and less for. That feels, I'm really grappling with myself about that and how I, I think about teachers and, and 
medical practitioners and in, in, holders of Indigenous knowledge who we pay a pittance to, and and yet I can charge a bunch of money to some senior executives so they can talk about leadership. And I go, really? Is Am I really adding as much value as somebody who's, you know, helping you not have pneumonia? Like, really? So I, I think there's something there for me about how do we value skills and capabilities and knowledge? So that, that feels like an edge for me. I think there is at a sort of learning edge in my own practice, I'm trying really hard to learn, to learn te reo Māori, you know, the, the, the Indigenous language of Aotearoa, and I don't find language learning easy, and I have a class each week, and it is the sweatiest I get each week. I just <laughs> am drenched with anxiety <laughs> and, and this desire to do it right and yeah. be impressive and know the answer and, like, this deeply ugly competitive piece in me <laughs> that turns up and is like, I know that we're supposed to be open to learning and humble, but also I want to be amazing <laughs> and impress the shit out of my tutor. And so that's really alive for me. And alongside that is doing the work in my own backyard. My people spoke Scots and they spoke Cornish. And here I am learning somebody else's language and also trying to learn, you know, Highland Gaelic and that's really, really hard. And I and I am this, this colonizing force who speaks more of somebody else's language than they do of their own. And that feels like a really hard edge. And I can justify it by saying, but my children are Māori and therefore I need to learn for them and da 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 da, da and all of that. But but what's also really true, you know, another truth that sits alongside that is I don't speak my my own indigenous languages. Mm-hmm. And I could justify that forever if I really want to, but that's the truth. So I'm talking about doing your own, you know, looking in your own backyard and there's space for me in my own backyard to do some planting and some digging. I, I just so appreciate the way that you're able to look at that and make direct eye contact with it and and always be open to A, I'm, I'm doing, it sounds like there's a, a recognition and a realization of multiple things. I'm doing the best I can. I'm unfinished in so many ways. I've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> mm. And those are those are beautiful things to be able to hold all together because I know that it, it feels really personally easy to lean on one of those and not look at the other legs of it. That mm. yeah, I'm doing the best I can. And like let's let's pump the brakes here. Like that's that's one of the ways that I might not take on as much responsibility as maybe I ought to be taking or one of the ways that mm-hmm. I might hide. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm one of the good guys. I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and, and I might get out of jail free card as, you know, some is better than none, Sarah, right? Yeah. Like do something. You don't have to be perfect at it. Just keep trying. And there's also like in that an excuse And I think we have to be gentle with each other and with ourselves. And I totally hear what you're saying around all, again, all of those things can coexist. Yes. And I think that's the beauty of it. The being unfinished means I get to learn new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I get to. It's a beautiful way to say it. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm going to meet some cool people who know things I don't know, and they're going to tell me some stuff or share some stuff, and I'm going to get smarter as a result, which really speaks to the seven-year-old in me who is like, know this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, it it's sometimes it comes from a healthy place and sometimes it comes from a less healthy place, mm-hmm. and it's acknowledging that both of those have value and have had value. Mm-hmm. So you self-proclaimed are a an annoying and hard question asker in your work. <laughs> and I have been given that title by other people as well. Yeah. And I and I also I hear that some people call you a tetanus shot. And <laughs> I'm just I'm wondering how, you know, what are what are some examples of tough questions that you might bring to the people that you work with and Mm. uh, by all accounts it seems like you're bringing them to yourself as well Mm. I think the first question and 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 anyone who's worked with me will know that this is a question that I ask uh, is what is it like to be on the receiving end of you and most people go, well, awful, because I'm a terrible person and <laughs> I'm grumpy all the time. You know, Most people start with, with what's wrong. But I think there's a beauty in that as well. So I think for some of us, the toughness is not in identifying the flaws. It's in owning the, the grace mm. and the talent. And particularly in Aotearoa, there is an expectation that you don't get too big for your boots. Yeah. You don't, you don't speak too much about the good parts. You, you certainly wouldn't explain to people why you're amazing because, Oh my goodness, nobody's talking to you for a week. Um, So, so I think both sides of the way you would answer that question are, are hard for people. What is it like to be on the receiving end of you? That's tough. So that's one of the questions I, I often begin with that give people pause I think, I hope that the hard questions I ask are are not hurtful. But the person who referred to me as a tetanus shot, his name was Renata Apatu, and he gave everyone a nickname. So (laughs) as much as I would like to feel special, you know, I was one of many. Um, (laughs) His his reasoning behind giving me that that nickname was, he said, you know, it's, it's painful, but it's good for me. And I guess... The questions that I'm asking are around, look deeply at yourself. What are you bringing? Where does that come from? Not just, you know, how do you delegate better? Or, you know, it's what are the assumptions that you're making about other people here? What are the assumptions you're making about yourself? What are the things that you're avoiding? And where does that come from? What are the things you have to unlearn here? People hate it when I ask that question. Yeah. <laughs> you have to unlearn. Like, I don't want to unlearn anything. Everything, leave me alone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's what's right about your perspective and what else is right about their perspective? You know, and I often ask people to think about what, if you're in conflict with somebody, what's correct about what they're saying? What points are they making that maybe you don't want to hear but are equally true what else is true here is a question I ask a lot you know because layers yeah you know what what are you trying really hard to avoid talking about or what are you trying really hard to avoid thinking about here Mm. um there's another question so it's 
it's that self-reflection that for many of us, it's more comfortable not to do. Mm -hmm. And those are really where the questions that I ask are going for. Mm. Mm. All beautiful questions. This one might seem like it's a little out of left field, but what do you think is the kindest thing that someone could say to you about you? I love that question. I think the kindest thing would be that I create space for people to be who they truly are and and that I make that okay for them to be who they truly are when we're together. And that I am honest about my wildly extensive imperfections so that other people can be as well. That I make imperfection safe. And in 36 hours, I will have a way better answer for you than that. But that's where I start. <laughs> it's a pretty damn good answer to me, Sarah. I, I love that answer. And if you have a better answer in 36 hours, I'm here for it. But for now, that's a, <laughs> that's a perfect answer. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about today that you would like to invite into the conversation now? Any other way that you see yourself, the work you do, things that are alive or important in your world right now, anything at all before we start moving towards the back end? Mm. I mean, I think, Mike, I could talk to you for days and, <laughs> and still be enjoying the conversation, but I'm also really content with where we're at. Okay. Well, before I start to ask the back end questions, I do have, there's something that I want to circle back on that I think can be, it's a really hard thing to look at, but it, it really, I think it fits in beautifully as maybe a bow on the front end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you speak to like, it's, it's one thing to just talk. It's right now it's, it's two white people who are do, trying mm -hmm. to do good on a podcast and a, a tough question that I am sitting with in myself because when push comes to shove i i really go retreat into myself with something like this mm. and the the question that i'm wanting to put my arms around here is like what would you actually be willing to give up to make a difference in creating a more equitable and just world like would you what level of income would you be okay with mm. what comforts would you have to let go of I don't know that I'm asking you necessarily so that you have a great answer to the question, but it's more of like, a, I think I'm going to walk with this when we get off this call mm -hmm. here. It's it's almost just an invitation for the listener and, and maybe for each of us to sit with from our place of comfort. What do we, what would we really mm -hmm. be willing to let go so that we can create this world that we say we want, but maybe we're not acting in accordance with mm -hmm. that and I, I kind of I say that mostly is to, to put the heat on me that mm. uh, mm. uh, I feel in all if you were to ask me what my edges are or where I feel most unfinished I would probably have the same laughter that you had because the acknowledgement is mm. I, I don't know which lane to choose here I'm, I'm unfinished in so many freaking ways it's unbelievable but I think perhaps the way that I experience myself to be most unfinished is what would I really be willing to give up 
so that mm. we can be part of a world that is more of the things that I say and, and mm. really putting my money where my mouth is. Mm. Mm. I love this question and I, and I, wouldn't it be amazing if all our world leaders could get together and have this conversation, mm. right? Yes. So, you know, if you're out there listening, <laughs> <laughs> I, it's a conversation that's, that we have quite a bit in our family because in our family we have and and I think most people's have this in their family we've got people who are really well resourced and we also have people who are really struggling mm -hmm. and so it's a live question it's not a theoretical question it's mm -hmm. it's how do you address that in your own spaces and places and what are you willing you know are you willing to bring people into your house are you willing to give away some of your house are you willing to are you willing to give away money? Are you willing to to give back land? You know, there's a big movement in Aotearoa called Land Back, which is, hey, <laughs> the land we are sitting on fundamentally is not ours. Mm. Fundamentally does not belong to us. And, and as I mentioned earlier, has been taken and stolen and sold illegally and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's, the question sits with me, would I give up my the things that I believe that I own? And would I give up the idea of ownership? Mm. Would, I, would I be comfortable with a system of government that is not run by white people? Mm. And I can honestly say that that if you'd asked me that those questions, if I had answered those questions a few years ago, there would have been discomfort for me because I go from being privileged to maybe not. But the more and more I see of of what the of what the indigenous people of this country know, I think, man, <laughs> these folks know the answers. And can they please be in charge now? Yeah. <laughs> And I'm what we've we've just had a huge disaster, a, a, a big environmental disaster here, and I'm watching the Maori response, and it's phenomenal, mm. and it's in many ways better. Mm. And so my question, my my answer to your question is, I now am comfortable giving up mm. a lot, mm. and the hard edge of that is why did I need to see proof? before I was comfortable with that. Like what what level of ingrained racist thinking requires proof? I actually, before before we move on here, because I'm just having such a good time and you said that you could speak for many hours. So now, now Sarah, you're locked in. We're, we're speaking for several hours more. Challenge uh, accepted. <laughs> I... Part of me, even before we jumped on the conversation recording wise, wanted the the check-in that we had with each other to be on on the air and permanently mm. stored. I, I'm wondering if you could just speak to a little bit about the natural disaster that happened recently and mm. and a little bit about the the ritual that that we had before we jumped on it. And you could speak to my experience a little bit too, just the, the 20 minutes or so that we arrived here together before we jumped on mm. recording wise. Sure. And sure. And with the proviso that if I've missed something important, you're going to jump in. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, yeah. So 
over the last weekend, so so nearly a week ago, a, a cyclone arrived at the top of the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And it, while well predicted, and our weather forecasters gave us as much information as they could, as early as they could, came on the back of a, a wet summer and some previous flooding. And now we are looking at a a disaster the size that for most people alive they've never seen the scale of this before. We have communities that are cut off and that are being told not to expect power uh, for three weeks uh, that cannot be accessed by anything other than plane or boat. Um, our second major road throughout the country has more breaks than you can count in it. We have uh, livestock, which is a huge part of the economy here, being literally washed away. Thousands of animals drowned. We have loss of life. We have people who are still missing and the death toll will rise. And I spent 24 hours not able to contact with my sister earlier this week. And I, we spoke in our check-in, Mike, about how reliant on technology we've become. We've got an infrastructure in Aotearoa that, that does not meet the population. And we have not moved on, on, a, on adapting to the rigors of climate change. And we are wearing that result now. And it's absolutely devastating, absolutely devastating to watch. And so we spoke a little bit about that and about how that's landing. And I think we also spoke about the death of your childhood friend and about how that was weighing on you and, and the relationship that you had with him. And and we spent a little bit of time checking in on and I guess where we were both at with what was happening contextually for us and and how that was showing up and how it might show up for us today and checking that we were both okay to continue given all of that. And then we lit a candle for your for your friend um, in memory and in recognition of all that he contributed to your life and the lives of other folks. Well, that's what I was thinking about. You might have been thinking about something else. But, no, that's but but yeah, I I think again it's it's a reminder of we all sit within systems. Yes, mm -hmm. which is exactly what I was just thinking about right before you said it. Is that it, it wasn't even my intention with the question. I just thought mm -hmm. here's another tender, beautiful. I don't even know if I want to say that, but here is here's something that's really important to look at that we spoke about before recording, but it actually ties in exactly to what we're talking about, where mm. our systems and our infrastructure right now are not set up to thrive in the worlds that we're actually living in right now. And mm. it's hard to look at the demise in, in this way, but it's what you and I, I'm so grateful to be able to have connections like you in my life among many other people where I can show up on a call and we can really check in with each other and hold the space for each other that we're both, we're bringing a lot into this conversation as mm. we've named many times. We're, we're bringing not only these specific events, but as you beautifully laid out in the past hour and a half here, 
we're also bringing all of our ancestry and all of the ways that we're functioning within the systems and the gift of being able to actually share all of that mm -hmm. allows a beautiful conversation like this to unfold in a way that I wouldn't, I would have been too closed off and too scared of what I might say or mm -hmm. just what it, what it would mean to fuck up in, in front of an audience of people that it wouldn't have been possible if I wasn't taking a look at these things. So it mm -hmm. isn't, it isn't just heavy, hard things to look at. There's also the, I don't know. I, I just have more Michaelness moving through me at any given moment in my life because I'm more able to attune to whatever's there instead of hiding from it and ignoring it and wishing it away. Mm. And it's mm. it's a beautiful way to to put a bow on a, a really rich, deep exploration, as I anticipated, about just what it means to be a human functioning in this world that we're living in right now. Mm. I love that. I love more Michaelness. I think that's excellent, and we can all have more of it. And and I guess I I I mean that in a sort of lighthearted recognition, but also like who wants to lead or operate in a world where you can't show up mm -hmm. as you? Like what kind of what kind of leadership is that? What kind of personhood is that? Like let's all show up like little robots who are pretending to be happy when you know actually life is shit. <laughs> or things are hard or there's something beautiful that's happened that we can't stop and pay attention to and I just think gosh there's so much beauty and sadness and bittersweet joy and horror and heartbreak and chaos and you know wonderful mad shit yeah. that, that I want to pay attention to and I want leaders to pay attention to and I want kids to pay attention to because it's there whether we're looking or not. It's shaping us whether we're looking or not. But if we're looking at it, then we have choices. Whereas if we're not looking at it, it's making choices for us that mm. maybe we don't want made. And I think for me, that's the big thing about understanding context and system is by looking at it, by looking at that hard stuff and the beautiful stuff and the painful things, I get to choose what to do with it. You know, I and I think so often with things like particularly grief, I say to my clients, you know, it comes to get you. So either you sit with it or it comes to get you and it leaks out in a place that you don't want it to leak out or a moment where it doesn't feel appropriate. So instead of being hunted by that stuff, why can't we just go, this is what's real for me and and honor all of what that is. Mm. And I loved beginning our conversation this way because you showed up as you. And when we do that for ourselves, we allow other people to do it. We create space for other people to do it. Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds, as you were starting to say all that, it, it sounds almost hilarious that we we don't give ourselves permission to be who we really are. And and also it, it breaks my heart in in so many ways that, I there's still so many different contexts in my life where I'm I'm still learning what full Michaelness means in any given moment. And so there's the the grace and the patience of what it means mm. to be unfolding and, and becoming who we who we are. But mm. I was I was just thinking, you know, one of the questions I often ask myself and other people is what is the most honest thing I could say right now? Mm. And 
that's another of those annoying questions. Um, <laughs> but I, one of the things I've started to do because I feel very much the same as you, like why am I sugarcoating this or why am I making it look fancy when it's really not, is I've started challenging myself to show up as honestly as I can wherever I am. And so that means, you know, I was in a conversation a few months ago with a very senior leader um, of a very significant organization and <laughs> we're on a zoom call and we're talking about leadership and and I feel myself starting to overheat and you know because everybody's had COVID and I, I said to him I just need to stop for a moment I don't know if it's the afternoon sun or if it's I'm, if I've if I'm getting COVID or if this is just perimenopause because that's happening for me too right now I don't know what it is but I just need two minutes because I am on fire <laughs> and and you know he had a laugh and I think he was probably slightly uncomfortable and I had a laugh and I as I was saying it going Sarah why are you saying this you fucking idiot this guy's <laughs> never going to work with you again but what also happened is the other women on the call went oh my goodness me too yeah and it turned out that it was COVID. <laughs> but, you know, if I can show up as the most honest version of me, what does that create space for other people to do? Mm. And they might not do it in that moment. And I might be feeling stupid by myself and that's okay. But I felt that before. It's not new. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love the idea that when we do it, we create space for other people to do it. Yes. Oh, fuck yes to all of that. So just, I, I just have a couple more questions for you, Sarah. Yeah. And like I said, this has been an absolute delight. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Mm. See, I thought about this one too, because I knew yeah. this one was coming. I was excited because I was like, which one do I pick? <laughs> Being in the bush, in the forest, in stillness is one. And the other one is in the sunshine on my back deck. Is deck an American word? It, I think it sounds like something else when I say it with a Kiwi accent. Porch, porch, on the porch. Um, in the morning sun with a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Yes. I actually, uh, to to bring Matt back into the conversation, my, mm. my friend from camp who passed away, we, when I was at sleepaway camp, a lot of our counselors were from New Zealand and, and I'm very intimately familiar with their pronunciation of dick versus <laughs> deck, deck versus dick. So uh, it's not new for me, for the listener, maybe it is, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, now we've, now we've spoken about that word a little longer than I anticipated we would in this conversation. <laughs> I moving on <laughs> or maybe i'm maybe i'll allow myself to sit in the discomfort of saying of saying this word uh maybe that's what i need in this moment <laughs> jokes aside i i see a beautiful stack of books behind you mm. and i would love to hear maybe you've actually spoken to the Catherine schultz i think you said is mm -hmm. one of the authors who i forget the name of the book but i'll link to that and the other people you mentioned in the show notes mm. and would also love to hear of the books behind you or otherwise, what are two to three that have had a big impact on you? This is hard choice shit, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do I pick? I love them all so much. James Nestor Breath 
is a book that I love. It was referred to me by my friend Nir, who is a legend. And and I love that it helps me slow down. Mm-hmm. How do you narrow this down to two or three books, Mike? What else would I add? You could also just, if you if you feel called to name 10, then go for it. A lot of my uh, guests don't actually say two to three. They end up saying five, six, seven. Yeah. There's no rules. This one, Paula Davis, comes out of Wharton Business School, Beating Burnout at Work. And it's about how systems impact energy and and it you know it moves away from that sense of if you are feeling burnt out it's your problem it's a systemic view of burnout and I think for a lot of people that's a really big thing right now we've had some tough times I'd made to Dr. Hinemua Elder she's a psychologist in Aotearoa and her book she's got a couple books the first one that I that I loved is called Aroha, which is uh, the simplified translation of that is love. Um, and it it's all it's a full of whakatauki, uh, which are wise sayings from te ao Māori, and it's about how to live in harmony with yourself and the planet from both a scientific but a mātauranga Māori and Māori knowledge perspective. So bringing wisdom in. And I find that really useful as a sort of deeper connection for myself. What else do I love? Oh, <laughs> uh, there's a book. There's a there's another book that I would pick up by by Barry Oshry, who I mentioned earlier. Context, 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 which is all about understanding the system that you're living within and how it shapes how you show up, both at work and in other places and spaces. Michael Bungay Stania. The Coaching Habit, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you've come across. I just love the simplicity and I love his bluntness of that work. I'm going to stop there because I think otherwise it's going to be like midnight your time and I'll still be going on <laughs> book recommendation. Thank well, you I for appreciate asking. And a, a part of me wanted to go, and what else? Because that's one of Michael Bungay's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very much so. Mm. But getting into our the kind of cheeky coaching jokes aside, there's just one more thing before the very final question, which I know that you know is coming. You, I ask every guest, what's an organization that you'd like to raise awareness for? And you will be presencing the organization Just Speak. And yeah. If you would like to just say a, a word or two about Just Speak and uh, cool. why that organization matters to you. So I came across Just Speak a long time ago, they are a social justice movement, um, particularly moving in the space of criminal justice. And they challenge they challenge us to think about the criminal justice system in Aotearoa and the deep flaws within it. And the first time I knew of their existence was a real shift in my understanding of myself and myself in systems spaces. I went to see a man called Moana Jackson uh, speak and his knowledge of Aotearoa history, of the justice system. He was an amazing man and he passed away last year. And I never met him in person and he shaped so much of how I think. And I am absolutely indebted to him. And he was involved initially with Just Speak. And, and Just Speak pick a few things to focus on each year in the in reshaping and challenging the criminal justice system and all of the harm that it does 
to people in the system and impacted by the system. And I just think if we can reshape the way we treat people when they do wrong, however we interpret that and, and what we mean by that, then we can reshape the experiences of everybody in our country. So just speak an uh, organization that, again, bring challenge to me in the way that I think, and I value that, but they also look ahead and they're strategic about what we can do individually and collectively that makes a justice system that treats everybody equitably. And yeah. that feels really important to me. Well, and when I do the intro for this podcast, I will I'll certainly on the front end invite listeners to join me in donating. And I will be raising awareness. But also, if you're still with us right now, bless you for being here an hour and 40 minutes in. It's been a delight for me. And I'll invite you again here to join me in donating to Just Speak. I, I certainly will be donating. It's, it's very aligned with my mission and, and the mission of mm. this show. I will also be linking to your LinkedIn, your website, and any other places that folks can connect with you online and all of the mm. books and resources that we've mentioned. And the final question is, what does it mean to you, Sarah, to live a meaningful life? Love a question. Um, <laughs> what it, it, a meaningful life is a life where you address your own pain and learn from it so that you don't pass it on. A beautiful, succinct, simple, and true answer. I spent two weeks thinking about that, Mike. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a beautiful one. So there are many things that I want to appreciate about you and this conversation. I, I appreciate the level of rigor and care that you brought into the conversation, the level of preparation that matched my level of preparation. And that shined very much in, in the conversation that we had. I appreciate the, I think it was the first time in my podcast interviewing process that I asked, what is the kindest thing that someone could say about you? But I've been thinking about that for me because I'm really good at sharing appreciation to other people. But mm -hmm. I've been thinking recently about what would be like the, a nourishing way that I could receive and appreciate myself. And yeah, I think that for me, I, I like to see myself as someone who helps other people feel really safe and like they can be who they are, which mm. is in so many words, exactly what you said, that people feel that they can be who they are in front of you, that they feel challenged, they feel seen, and that you're willing to take the look at yourself in, in all the ways that you need to be taking a look at yourself. And one of the reasons that I had you on is that I, in, in the course that we did together, I mm. could see that all of, it's very evident that all of these things are true for you. They, they shine and you show up to every call with a level of care, open heartedness, and also maybe personal or cultural examples of what's relevant. And I just knew that it would be a fun exploration to have on my show. So this, this conversation delivered in all of the spades and it was truly a delight to have you on, Sarah. Thank you so, so much for coming on. 
thank you so, so much, Mike, for all of those lovely things that you have said, but also for being a person who who comes prepared, who who leans into your intuition and trusts it for being a person who has created a really safe space for me to land with all of my chaos in slightly unrefined ways <laughs> and, and who who asks big questions and sits with uncertainty. I love that in all of the podcasts that I have heard of yours, you show up as you. And again, that creates the space for the rest of us. I just, I want more Mikeness mm. in the world. <laughs> oh, I'm so touched by that, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to, I want to also dedicate this episode to Matt, mm-hmm. who, Matt, we didn't speak in quite some time, but I'm, I'm thinking of you big time these last couple of days and want to uh, dedicate this episode to you and to all the listeners, whenever you're listening, um, sending you lots of love. And I hope that you have a good rest of your day or evening. Take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.